welcome to the Wrestling Heroes and Insiders Podcast, aka The Whip Show. Your co-hosts, Deshaun Whip Dog Whipple and Devastating Daryl Pace, each and every week will bring in some of the top pro wrestlers from around the world. I'm talking WWE, WCW, Impact Wrestling, NWA, and more. So sit back, get your favorite drink, and listen to some great stories told by those amazing and sometimes crazy pro wrestling superstars. Everybody, welcome to another edition of the Wrestling Heroes and Insiders Podcast, aka The Whip Show. Guys, I am glad to have you back for another edition. As always, I want to thank you for all the support y'all been doing. Y'all know we've been doing this for four seasons, and we've been trying to bring some great names to you. Also want to thank you for supporting the other contributors to the Whip Show Podcast Network, Universe, whatever you want to call it. Make sure you go check out my boy, the Word Heavyweight Champion, Mr. Joe Walker, in his railing series as he tackled last week the Sasha Banks and Naomi uh, situation. And also make sure you go check out the coach. You know, the coach's corner. Yeah, I know. I still hate that he on my podcast, but hey, I got to pay him anyway. So whatever. But check out his episode too, Coach's Corner. He did a good episode, I guess, about Naomi and Sasha as well. And remember, that drops every Wednesday and every Thursday for Mr. Joe Walker and the coach. And guys, enough about that. Because let's talk about other stuff. Because right here, I'm going to educate you on your wrestling history. A few of you know that back in the day, I used to work for a man named Eddie Farhat Jr., who ran AWWL Big Time Wrestling. Rest in peace, Mr. Farhat Jr. But for it to be a Farhat Jr., there had to be a Farhat Sr. And the man I have on the show today just chronicled a book about the original Sheik. I would like to introduce you guys to the author. The amazing Mr. Brian R. Solomon. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. That what you got a lot of energy. I'm gonna try and keep up with you and, and match match your energy. <laughs> oh man, I know you got this, man. I know you got this. First and foremost, like I said, we, we're still we're sl- sliding out of this pandemic a little bit, even though it's getting a little weird again. Who knows? Mm-hmm. H- how did you make it through the pandemic, man? How are you holding up? I don't think I would have been able to do this book without it. I know, I know that sounds crazy, but I, you know, I was home all the time. Like so many people, it started like right around right after I started the book. So like all of a sudden, you know, cause I was working as a, as a full-time tutor for an agency, they sent me home. I started doing sessions from home remotely. Then they started cutting everybody's hours and everything. And so I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to make this book my full-time job. And so I I was sitting at this desk nine to five, like a job working on this book, which is a blessing because most books do not get written that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I would not have been able to dig into it and give as much effort and time to it and get it done in such a relatively short amount of time. I mean, just a couple of years, if it wasn't for all this stuff happening, that was like, forcing me to focus so it was kind of weird how it turned out 
man. Well, see, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people, um, even though the pandemic was what it was, and unfortunately we did lose a lot of lives, but there was definitely some positives as well, just as you just stated about your book. And before we delve into the book, man, I want to start back in the day. I want to go in the past a little bit, man. First of all, I like to always ask my guests, what was your initial tie to the world of professional wrestling, man? Well, the first time I ever got exposed to it or was aware of it, it's actually an interesting story because I wasn't even, a, I didn't become a fan for years later, but I, um, when I, in my neighborhood, because I grew up in WWF territory in the Northeast. So what they did, and a lot of territories did in those days, they used to run the little elementary school gyms and things, you know, even the WWF, people can't believe it when I tell them that, but it's true. They did. And so um, I was four years old. Okay. It's 1979. I'm starting kindergarten and they're giving us a tour of the grounds of the school. It was a Regina Podges Catholic school in Brooklyn. And I'm walking by the youth center gymnasium and there's a poster on the wall and it's for WWF wrestling coming. And it's set in the, ma the main event they were advertising. It was uh, chief Jay Strongbow going for revenge against Greg, the hammer Valentine for breaking his leg, which was a really famous angle that they did here in, in W in the Northeast at the time. And I was just, I had no idea what it was, but I mean, it was totally fascinating. And then a few years later, I started getting into watching it when it was getting really hot in the eighties, but I, but I always had it in the back of my head from seeing that poster. Isn't that weird? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so you move forward, you saw that. What was the thing that finally brought you on in? Like, you know what? I'm there. I'm right there. I'm, I'm, I'm. Were you a super mark or were you just a, a super fan or were you just casual? I could tell you what it was. Now, I remember, you know, for years I had people in my family that watched wrestling. So I kind of knew about it. My grandfather, my uncle and all that. But and then when like WrestleMania hit and Hulk Hogan, I started hearing about it at school from all the kids. And I was kind of intrigued, but I wasn't that into it. What got me, and this is the, you know, everybody, so many people have the same answer. I wish I had a better answer, but it was leading up to WrestleMania three. It was Andre the Giant turning on Hulk Hogan. And, you know, as people know, back in those days, WWF wrestling was on Saturday mornings. So it would be mixed in with all the cartoons. So you got the TV on, you're watching your Saturday morning cartoons and stuff. I flipped on this thing and it was the Piper's Pit segment where Andre the Giant turns on Hulk Hogan and he rips the crucifix off and Piper's there and he's all in a state of shock and everything and Heenan's there and I'm just I'm 12 years old and I'm blown away like what is this I don't understand is this a sport is it a tv show is it a, a what is this it's the craziest thing I ever saw in my life and I was absolutely hooked from then on absolutely hooked Man, see, I knew I liked you from day one because <laughs> our connection is similar. I'm actually from the Detroit area, and what caught me was WrestleMania three. I went to the Pontiac Silverdome, Hogan and Andre. I literally still wear a crucifix to this day because of what Andre did to Hogan. Yes. Dig that, man. But that takes us to like 84, 87 in that area. 87, right. Now, I want you to talk about that's a little bit after the chic. I know. 
So how did you go into, <laughs> well, before we do that, before we do, I want you to hold the book up. So the people watching the video, I want you to go ahead and announce the book, say it all to them for the people that can listen as well. Because hold it up, show them a copy. Well, you know, I <laughs> I don't have a copy in front what? of me. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> well, you know what? I've done a million of these things and you're the first person who has ever asked me to hold the book up. But I could, but I could tell people what it's called okay, and all okay. that stuff. That's crazy. I should have, I should have had one down here. You know what's funny is I normally do these actually upstairs, okay. and and I have a lot of stuff at my fingertips. But right, we're putting my wife's putting our son to bed upstairs, so I could I couldn't be up there. I'd be keeping him awake. That's okay. okay. That's all right. It's called Blood and Fire: The Unbelievable Real Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik. And um, it came out April 12th, but we had a little, we had some Amazon difficulties. Uh, they weren't really prepared for the demand, which I guess is a good thing. But now it's fully out there. You can get digital copies. You can get physical copies. And the audio book comes out at the end of the month, which I actually got to narrate. So it's me reading the book. If people want that, that's another way to, to get it. So Blood and Fire, that's the name of the book. Nice, man. Nice. Now, the book is uh, a biography of the original Sheik, man. Yes. So what was your draw to even just talking about um, such a great character? Because like I said, I'm from the Michigan area, so I heard a lot of stories about Olympia. And as I stated before, I worked for his son. But what drew you to writing a book about him as opposed to one of the other stars of wrestling? So I started, you know, as you pointed it out, all this stuff is before my time. It, it is. I mean, I, you know, I was alive when the Sheik was still doing big time wrestling in the later date years of it. But I mean, I, I wasn't, I was very young and I wasn't watching it and I wasn't aware of it, but um, I got really interested in the early nineties when I got a little bit older and I was like around late, late high school age going into college, I started getting interested in wrestling history, which became my obsession. And, and it started with the magazines. So like the first magazine I picked up, that really got me into it was the, the wrestler magazine put out their 25th anniversary issue, which came out in 1991. So I'm like 16 years old. I picked this thing up. And again, my mind is blown because all I know is the WWF. All I know is the wrestling I watched on TV and I'm learning about all this history and everything that happened, you know, in the sixties and the seventies and through the eighties. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, and, and actually in that very issue, one of the things that jumped out at me was there was a picture of um, there was a referee in, in California back in the 70s called uh, Johnny Red Shoes Dugan, the original Red Shoes. And the Sheik had burned him in a match uh, wrestling Pompero Furpo at the Olympic Auditorium. And they had a picture. It's actually a famous picture of Dugan with the side of his face burned. And it really looked like it was burned. Now, later on, I learned how they do things like that. You know, there are ways to do it, but I didn't know that at 16 and I'm looking at it and I'm going like, isn't this supposed to be a show? Like, what, what is this? What, did anybody tell this guy that it's a show? Like, like I, I, again, I couldn't understand. And so as I started to learn about wrestling history, I was more and more fascinated with the Sheik for years. And then like it started to dawn on me because I'd written a couple of wrestling books now that I'm, you know, an adult and everything. And I worked for WWE for a time. So, I, you know, I was in the writing world and I'm thinking, you know what? I want to do a biography. I haven't done a biography. And it occurred to me there's never been one for the Sheik. And I couldn't think of anybody at his level in his era that didn't have a book that was done about them. 
so many wrestling biographies out there. No one's ever tried it. And I thought, well, this has to be done, especially somebody like that who led their life in such secrecy. You know, the story's got to be told. It's been so much time now. Like if it doesn't get told, eventually it's all going to be lost. So I tackled that as my project. And I was lucky that ECW Press, they jumped at it. And I think part of the reason why is because a lot of his career was also in Toronto, as you probably know. And, you know, ECW Press is Canadian. So they saw the appeal there, too, with the Canadian readers and all that stuff. And we were off and I was I was off and running, you know, and, and just I learned a lot even writing the book that, that I didn't know before. And I'm glad you touched on that, man, because one thing I try to always do on this show is make sure fans understand. Yes, we got Roman and I'm a big head of the table tribal chief fan and a lot of stuff we got going on with AEW. I like all that. But you got to understand the history and how big it was. I want you to kind of verbalize to these people that just like you talked about, WWF has shows at the gymnasium, but actually how big the Sheik was to the world. Like this wasn't no 50 people right. in, the, in, the, in the gym. Could you kind of verbalize that to the fans? Right. So anybody that tells you, you know, there's this myth that before the WWF went national with Vince McMahon and everything, that wrestling was really small time and it was low rent and it was only these little crowds and little buildings. Yeah, there was that. There's always been that. But that was not what the business was at all. The business was thriving. There were stadium shows. There were huge arena shows, record attendances and things. Nothing like they do at these WrestleManias now. But the business was really thriving. The only difference was it was broken up into pieces. So you didn't have one company running everything across the country. You had regions and territories. But within those territories, if you lived in that area, that was the only wrestling you had. That was the major league wrestling to you. But the difference, so the thing with the Sheik was in those days, it was a real challenge. You had your local stars in every territory and region. You had the guys that were popular in that area, you know, and they stayed in that area. But then you had the guys that were so big that they could travel everywhere. And everywhere they went, they were the main event. Everybody knew them. They were on the magazine covers. So I'm talking about there were guys like Andre the Giant. Bruno San Martino, Mil Mascaris was a guy like that. Dusty Rhodes absolutely was like that. You know, who, the NWA world champion, whoever that happened to be, would travel all over. And the Sheik was on that list. He could go anywhere in North America and, the, and, the, and to Japan eventually, too. And he would instantly be the main event wherever he went. I'm talking like anywhere from the, from the mid-60s up through the mid to late 70s. That was a fact. He didn't need an angle. He didn't need a storyline. All I had to say was next week, the Sheik will be here. And you could sell the place out just based on that. We have to see this lunatic and what he's going to do. And you could even look, uh, you know, like Meltzer in The Observer, every year he compiles this list where he goes down every year who was the number one box office draw in the business that year. And he goes back like 120 years. If you look at it now, it's Roman Reigns. Everybody knows that he's the number one draw in the business, right? But you, if you if you break it down and you look, the Sheik was number one for like two or three different years. And to do that as a heel, that's a big deal. I mean, Roman's doing it as a heel too. But especially in those days, to do it as a heel, I mean, he was outdrawing Bruno San Martino, that meant. you know. And even the years where he wasn't number one, in that era, he was close. He was like two or three. And, you know, that's a rare thing to draw that much money 
everywhere you go for that many years, you know, a very unique and special attraction. Man, that, that's so true. And one way he did that, as you know, you talked about it earlier, him protecting the business. See, now, I mean, I don't even want to go into it, but like I said, I got my podcast has talked about it. But the Sasha Naomi thing, the WWE wrote a statement that they normally don't kind of do, but they did a, a wild it was, statement. It was, it was weird, wasn't it? Really weird. And that statement even used the word that, I mean, obviously we know what the business is, but they even used that word script. But going back to the Sheik, this was when kayfabe was up. Do you understand? I want you to tell people how protected the Sheik was for the business. Like you didn't get into no. the inner circle at all. Could you kind of verbalize that to the people? Right. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, had the assumption because he was so good at it that he really was like that. And he was like that all the time. And obviously, if, if you think about it logically, we know that can't be true because man had a family, he had a wife, he had kids, he had a business to run. You know, he's not at home, you know, throwing fire at people and everything. But but You're sure. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> but the difference was the thing with him was he always was in character if he was around people that were not in the wrestling business. That was the rule. So the minute he left the locker room, he was on. And anytime he was in public, even away from wrestling, he was on, never broke. If he was at a gas station, his wife would, you know, talk to the gas station attendant and, and, and pay them. If he was at a restaurant, his wife would do the ordering. In fact, he even brought his wife with him a lot more often than some guys did because he needed somebody to talk for him because he tried to stay in character 100% if he was in public. So like, and he would carry it to extremes. I mean, you know, uh, he, he went by the name Sheik. I mean, even to the people that knew him and loved him, his wife called him Sheik. His, 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 his grandchildren called him Grandpa Sheik. His nephews and nieces called him Uncle Sheik. There was a story that if you called the house and you asked for Eddie, he would say there's nobody here by that name and hang up on you. You know, so like this was to now in those days, kayfabe was very strong and, and people tried to stay in character and protect it. But even by the standards of those days, he was on another level entirely. Like yeah. nobody was taking it as far as he did even back then. But he believed in it because the thing with him was you have to remember is the business was based on belief back then. So it was a real fear. It's not exaggeration or paranoia. He was very concerned if people found out that he wasn't really like that and that he was Catholic and American citizen served in World War II and all this stuff, that they would stop caring and they would stop coming to the shows. They would think it was a, it was a, it was phony. I know that sounds ridiculous to fans now. People would have been turned off and your livelihood is in trouble. So that's the way he looked at it was he was protecting his livelihood. Man, absolutely, man. And it's funny because and he, and he taught that to his children, Tom Farhat and Captain Ed George. They were the, they were the same way. They were the same yeah. way. But I want to ask you, though, man, speaking of Captain Ed George and those guys, how did you compile so many great pictures? I mean, those are historical pictures or something. How did you get some of that stuff? Uh, well, I had to go to a lot of different sources. So, I mean, um, you know, for the wrestling shots, it's, it wasn't that hard because 
I happen to know a lot of different wrestling photographers. And one of the guys, I don't know if you know, do you know Dave Brzezinski? Super yes. Dave Drayson? Okay. Yes. He was a godsend. I mean, really, he was like my Obi-Wan Kenobi when I was writing this book. He was the man. And partly because of his experiences, and he worked for Sheik and managed him and all this stuff. But also, he was a photographer. So he had amazing stuff. I would say probably 75, 80% of all the pictures in the book came from Dave. And, and as far as like personal pictures, you know, I didn't have as much personal pictures as I would have liked because the family was not involved, you know? Uh, So I couldn't, you know, my ultimate dream, my dream would have been to have a baby picture of the Sheik. Like if I could have done that, I think people would have died. You know what I mean? And I was not able to make anything like that happen. The best thing I, the most candid thing I have, I have a shot of him and Joyce just together at home, just like cuddling, which is pretty amazing. And I have a shot of Sheik at his son at Eddie Jr.'s wedding to, to Kathy. And he's dancing with, I think, his mother-in-law. And it's a pretty cool thing to have. Yeah. But but I mean, it was it was it was hard work getting the more personal pictures, but I tried to put in what I could. I found some stuff on newspapers.com and ancestry.com and things like I found pictures of his parents in really bad quality but it was the best i could find you know okay now with that being said i want to ask you this you've been reading a lot about him you wrote the book about him and everything and i've always kind of have a problem with these kind of interviews with authors because i don't want to give away too much but i want to do enough for the fans to come in it's okay. There's there is so much in the book. I'm not worried about giving away. I think there is so much in that book. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's where I want to go. What was one story that you had no idea about, but you, once you start doing research, you were like, "Man, this is amazing." One specific story that really popped you. Well, there's one that I've told, but I've I've told it on a lot of other shows, so I'm, I'm going to pick a different one. But one of them that I always tell is I found a story about the sheik running away from home as a child which is unbelievable. And I made it the opening of the book because it just blew me away. But there was another thing that I uncovered. And I haven't really talked about this, but it, it led to a theory that I have, which I can't prove. So um, the theory that I had based on what I could discover was, you know, in the WWF, right? You had Pedro Morales in the early 70s as a world champion. Now they wanted to get the belt off of Pedro and get it back to Bruno, but they, they needed a transitional heel champion in those days you didn't have the two baby faces you know exchange the belt so it wound up being stan stasiak stan stasiak beat pedro he held the title for eight days and he dropped it to bruno and i found these weird results where the sheik was supposed to wrestle pedro morales um the night before he lost the title to to stan stasiak if i'm remembering correctly And they changed at the last minute. They sent Pedro Morales to this tiny little high school show to defend the title. And they gave the Sheik a different match. And then as soon as Bruno won the title, the first opponent he had the next day after beating Stan Stasiak was the Sheik in Pittsburgh. And the theory that I had was that the Sheik was originally supposed to be the transitional champ. But the problem was that the Sheik did not want to be pinned by Bruno San Martino because <laughs> he never was. So instead, they had him lose. They had Pedro lose to Stasiak. Stasiak loses to Bruno. And then Bruno wrestles the Sheik the next day. And what happens, of course, 
the Sheik gets disqualified. So Bruno wins, but the Sheik didn't have to get pinned. Now, if they were doing a title switch, the Sheik would have to get pinned. So I think that was the deal breaker. I can't prove it, but with all the facts in front of me, that was the theory that I believe that the Sheik was originally meant to be the transitional WWF champion between Pedro Morales and Bruno San Martino. Y'all heard that. He gave all the exclusives. He's standing on it. He don't, That's not a theory. He believes it. It's a fact. I like believe Paul, it. Like Paul Heyman says, it's a fact, man. <laughs> With that being said, I do want to shift gears right quick because there is a segment that we do on the show, and it's called the markout moment. Now, the markout moment, that could be a time where uh, you met somebody, and you obviously said that you worked in WWE. You've obviously met tons of guys in the business. But it was a moment where you were just like, man, I can't believe I'm a part of this. It might have been even during the book process. You're like, man, I can't believe I have all this information. But if you were to pick one moment that you were like, yeah, I'm right here. This is real. What would you say was your markout moment, man? I, I mean, I don't mean to brag, but I have so many of those. It's, it's crazy because I worked for WWE for seven years. So a lot of those stories come from that. But I'll give you one that popped in that I remember going in the moment going, how did I get here? How is this happening? What is happening right now? And it was when it was, uh, I think it was like 2002 or three, when Mr. Perfect came back to the WWF, if you WWE, if you remember for that last run, he wasn't there long. And it was when I think he got fired after the plane ride from hell Brock he Lesnar thing, getting yeah. fired with the Brock Lesnar thing, but he was there briefly. And we wanted to do a photo shoot for WWE magazine, which was going to be like the kind of things that Mr. Perfect used to do where he was perfect at every game and every sport and everything. And so we got this idea. We were, we were in Cleveland and we went to this bar and it was me and Mr. Perfect. We were going to be at this bar and he was going to, he was beating me at darts. He was beating me at pool. He was beating me at like the shooting video games, everything you could think of. And he was cheating and all this stuff. And we wound up doing this photo shoot. But, and the thing was now Mr. Perfect and the big boss man were very, very, very close friends, very good friends. They traveled everywhere. And when boss man found out that we were going to a bar and we were doing a photo shoot, he decided he had to come along because he figured there'd be a lot of free drinks and stuff. So the long story short is I'm in the, I'm in the rental car. It's me and the photographer in the front seat and Mr. Perfect and the big boss man in the back seat. And we're driving around Cleveland and they're just laughing in the back like kids and telling these crazy stories. I remember them talking to me about what a pothead the ultimate warrior was. <laughs> And what an asshole he was. I don't know if you have a language restriction on no, this. No, you're show. good, baby. You're good. <laughs> they were just like, the ultimate warrior was an asshole. That guy was the worst. And I just couldn't believe it. It's one of those things you try to be professional, you know, and you think like, I was watching these guys when I was a kid and I'm riding around in a rental car with them and they're telling me stories <laughs> in the back seat. Like, I feel like I'm their dad, they're, like <laughs> laughing in the back. And it was surreal and crazy. And it just like, I had a lot of moments like that, but that one sticks out for sure. That's awesome, man. Rest in peace, Mr. Perfect. And, and boss, Big boss, man. man yeah. For real. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I want to get back onto the book, man. And one thing I've also noticed about you, you've really been hitting the ground hard. <laughs> I mean, you've been working with, <laughs> so you had to laugh at that yourself. 
I'm doing these things every day, practically. Right man, now. I mean, even the even the boy Cornette, we you you did what well with him, and we just had Kitty Bowling on my show last week. And I don't want to, yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? But how was it, man? Uh, uh, even interacting with that man, Cornette, man. He, but I know he loved the book. I, I I saw his review of it, man. He did, and I have to say, like, I, I I'm so grateful to him and to Brian Last, um, his co-host and producer. You know, because he he made it happen, too. And I, I had this thought in my head, you know, because I had been on Brian Last's podcast, the 605 Super Podcast. And I got to thinking, you know, I really think that Jim would love this book if I could find a way to get it to him and see what he thinks. You know, I think it would be great. And Brian helped me do that. Now, Jim is a total technophobe. So I had to print the whole book out on paper. <laughs> two reams of printer paper and mail it to him. But I'm glad I did because he has championed my book. He had me on the show and he, he talked with me for an hour and a half. I'm thinking like, I'm going to be on for 10 minutes. They're going to blah, 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 blah. onto the next thing, an hour and a half. And even Brian's been telling me like, Jim just loves the book. He won't stop talking about it. He's raving about it. He even got a blurb on the back of the book. I sent him a giant gift basket. Like I couldn't thank him enough. I, I was just, I, I really, I'm humbled by the support and the love that he has had for the book and having me on the show and everything else. And I mean, I, I really feel in a lot of ways that that really helped to take all of this to another level in terms of the promotion of the book and getting the word out. I mean, I never expected any of this. I just thought like, Hey, maybe, you know, I, I've been listening to their show for a long time and I think like, ah, this is a book I think he might like. And maybe he'll mention it on the show once or twice if he likes it. If he hates it, I hope he doesn't bury me. You know? <laughs> but, that, but that didn't happen. So I, I've been so grateful. So grateful. Man, and salute Mr. Cornette for that. Because I'm going to tell you, if you got Cornette to do a thumbs up, and we all know how the man can be, <laughs> yes. you know you're doing something amazing, man. That's serious, man. One more time, I want you to repeat to the people, how can they get, get the book? Sure. Well, um, you know, you can get it on Amazon.com. That's probably the easiest way these days. It's uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic. Barnesandnoble.com has it. Um, you can go straight to ECW Press's website, but the only issue there is because it's a Canadian company, the shipping is very expensive unless you live in Canada. Now, I also should say I do have some a limited number of copies that i am personally signing and selling um and people can reach out to me if they want one of those um they can, even to my email address can i give my email address oh go right ahead go right ahead it's brian r solomon at yahoo.com and they can get me there or, or on twitter i'm brian r solomon you can you can dm me on twitter and we can talk because i i have been selling a few i don't have you know as many as amazon has but i you know i'm doing a little bit of that Man, y'all heard it. Y'all know how to get a hold of the book. But then, Brian, I got to ask you what I ask everybody else as well. You said you're married, right? Yes. I'm going to ask you, you probably know where I'm going with this. D does she understand? You know what I mean? The, the, the being in the business, the book, does the wifey understand all of this? Man, I mean, is she support, you know? Yeah, you know, I, she's my second wife. And okay. um, my wrestling has nothing to do with my marriage ending, but, but my, see, I was with my first wife through all the years when I worked at WWE. So my wife, my now, 
you know, what she's seeing is like the after effect of all that, but she still knows that wrestling is like my world. It's like my life. She gets it. She's not, I wouldn't call her a fan. She doesn't hate it. She puts up with it. She tolerates (laughs) it. What she likes to say is she probably knows more about wrestling and the history of wrestling than anybody in the world who is not a wrestling fan. (laughs) And it's true. Like she could just have a conversation with you about wrestling and everything, the history of it. And you would think, wow, she really like loves this stuff. No, she's just around me all the time. And, you know, and just hears it constantly, you know, but I mean, no, but she's completely supportive of everything that I do. Honestly, really, I wouldn't been able to, to work so hard at putting all this wrestling stuff together. If I didn't have, her support because I've been the most involved in the wrestling business in the past few years than I have been since I worked for WWE. That's awesome, man. I always like to ask that question because I like to give the wives flowers because, you know, same with my girlfriend, we don't get to do this unless they understand. You know what I mean? So she came to Cauliflower Alley Club with me. So, I mean, not only did she come, but I mean, we were like dressed to the nines at the banquet. And she was like the center of attention. It was like, I t- I said to her, you are of any, outside of the celebrities and famous wrestlers, of just all the regular people in this room, you have had more attention than anyone else in this room out of the normal civilians. It's up to the point where when we go back in the fall this year, she's already thinking about what she's going to wear to top what she wore last year. It's like we're going to the Academy Awards or something, you know? That's so awesome, man. That's yeah. so dope right there, man. Yeah. I love to hear that, man. Speaking of Cauliflower Alley Club, so have you uh, given out the book to uh, Brian Blair, a lot of the guys over there yet? Well, I'm planning, you know, last at last CAC, it wasn't out yet. So my plan is um, I'm going to probably try to get a table, a merch table there this okay. year and sell some if I can. And I'm going to do the same in August for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame that started up in Albany in New York, because I've been doing stuff with them lately. So I think and that's not too far from me. So I'm probably going to do that in August and then CAC in September. All right. And uh, put put WrestleCon in L.A. next year on your list, too, man. WrestleCon is awesome, man. I would love to go to L.A. I'm doing one in New Jersey, but that's not really L.A. So. Uh, OK, OK, OK. Well, now I want to go into another segment. Now, you have actually been deep in the WWE world. Um, and this segment is called Book Yourself. What this segment means is that. It could be in the past. It could be something present. It could be a vision you had in the future. But if you were to take Brian Solomon right now, take away the fact that you're an author, but where would you book yourself? Maybe as a manager for somebody, maybe as a, uh, 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 maybe as a ring announcer, maybe as a wrestler. But if Brian Solomon was able to book themselves, what would you do? In the wrestling business? What yep. would I do? In the wrestling business. I would this will never happen and i probably wouldn't do it in the end because i knew i of the burnout and everything but in a perfect world i would actually love to have creative control over a wrestling company i i I would love to be to be a booker you know but i I just feel like there were times when i worked for wwe where they offered they were looking for creative team members and sometimes they would come to because i worked in the magazine department and the website so they would sometimes come to the writers there and say, hey, do you guys want to join the TV creative team? 
And I would think about it. And I always said no. And, and, and I'm glad I did, honestly, because the turnover and the pressure and having Vince on your back 24-7, I said, if I do that, I'll be gone in like three months. Like, I just know it. And I, I want to have a career here. But, you know, and, and I'm glad. So I'm glad I turned it down. But in a perfect world where there wasn't all that politics and nonsense, and if I could really book it, I would love, I really would love to have the ear of a Vince McMahon or a Tony Khan and, and try to book a territory. That's what I would want to do. So it makes me wonder, do you still kind of fantasy book right now? All the time. Oh my I, God. Think, I know you probably do. I, I try to resist like really going off about it online. And like, I also co-host the PWI podcast and I do my own podcast, shut up and wrestle. I try to avoid all that stuff. Like, here's what I would do. You beat this guy. And then this guy does this. Because I feel like everybody does that. Everybody has what they think is the what's going to work and all this. But I do it in my head all the time. I'm always like, <laughs> this is what they need to do. This is this is how you keep Roman fresh. I, I called it. I was on the PWI podcast and I said, listen, they have to get him. He's not losing anytime soon. He's got Cody on the horizon. That's got to happen. He's got hopefully the rock at WrestleMania next year. If they expect him to still be champion by then, they got to start getting creative because he's had the belt so long. And one of the things I said was this was a couple of months ago. I said, there is nothing wrong with doing a couple of six man tag team main events with the Usos, you know, where the title's not on the line. You take some of the heat off. You know, you could accomplish other things storyline wise and you don't run through all these challenges. Boom, 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 boom. And sure enough, that's what they did. So I don't know if they were listening to the PWI podcast, awesome, but man. that's what they did. They, they did the six man. And what do you get out of that, too? You also get because you have who do you have in that six man against them? Drew McIntyre uh-huh. and Randy Orton who they're already now talking about. Those are the two guys that are going to be keeping Roman Reigns busy for the next few months. Yep, you see, yeah. so maybe they're listening. <laughs> Man, you sound like a, we had, we had John's dad on here. See the senior. And you know, he was doing a podcast too. And he does the same thing. He watches it. He gets so, <laughs> When you're in it, it's just hard, man. I love that guy. I don't understand why they never, like, why WWE never did more with him. You have John Cena's father, who's, like, just as charismatic and amazing as John Cena. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. uh, Why wouldn't you do something with him? I never understood that. So, I'm only saying this because he did, he said this on, on my show. They have heat with him. Because, like, I know, the same face you just made. So He said something. I guess on his podcast about Seth Rollins during the time that they were pushing Rollins and you were there, you know, they can get a little bit funny acting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he literally said they haven't used him ever since then because they have heat with him because of him burying Seth when Seth was the champ. And Mm. yeah, they haven't used him ever since he said, Mm. which is great. And like you said, he's amazing. Like, yeah, I mean, I see exactly where John got it from. Because <laughs> right. he's awesome, man. But you also talked a little bit about even working there, man. And I, I've had um Noonan on the show, uh, former head of security. Jimmy, and yeah. I, yeah, great guy. And I've actually had uh, my buddy, he's from Detroit, Quincy Tucker, used to be a production assistant in WWE. And they said they obviously, just like you, they love working there, but they really said it's, it's a job. It's a job. It's it's you are, yeah. You are working. So I want you to kind of verbalize that to the fans listening that might want to go into – 
creative writing for the WWE or just get the job in the wrestling entertainment business to make them understand, yes, you love this, but this is still a business. Is there any way you can kind of verbalize that? Well, I can understand, you know, I can speak to the WWE experience. From what I understand, the AEW experience is very different. Couldn't be more different. People that have been backstage there and been inside there say it's much more laid back and it's a very different kind of vibe. But in a place like WWE, you know, you have to be able to bridge both worlds. You have to show them that, yes, you have some understanding of the business and the product, but you are not, and to use the you know parlance that they would use, you are not a mark. They don't want to see, you have to keep it in check. You have to keep your cool. And like you said, you have to remember that it is a job. Um, you know, there's a, there, there, it's, everybody talks about marks and smart marks, right? But there's a third category that they always used to talk about in the business, but you don't hear it as much anymore. There's marks. There's smart marks and then there's smarts. Okay. Now, a smart, as you probably know, is somebody that's totally smart to the business, is in the business, knows how it works, but they are not really a fan. They don't really get all like gushy about it. Like they're all business. They're passionate about it, but they're passionate about it as a business. And that's how you have to be to have longevity there. You, you, you have to. Like I could count the number of, pictures and selfies and things I took with wrestlers in seven years, I could probably count on one hand. Like I have them on one little shelf here in the corner, because if they see you doing that, you're not going to be there long. Like that's the, you just have to always remember to keep your wits about you do your job. You know, look, I'll be honest. I was there seven years and for about F after about two or three years, I was at the point where the only time I was watching wrestling was at work. And that included like I was watching TNA to keep up with what they were doing. But business wise, I would I would watch Raw in the office. We would get tapes and things back then. I would watch the pay-per-views there. Um, and when I came home, no wrestling, like because that's all I was doing from nine to five every day. And you don't think that could happen to you. If it could happen to me, it can happen to anybody, you know. So the last few years there and I would say like the last two years out of the seven. It just it wasn't fun anymore. It, it really. But again, I think that's a WWE thing. I don't know if that that happens everywhere, but they can sometimes like beat it out of you, you know? Yeah, I get it. I get it. So you, you talked earlier that you were part of the magazine. Uh, was it WWE magazine or Raw or both? Both all of it, because they're all made. They were all made by one division, the publications department. So all of them. So you're the one I'm supposed to be mad at because my mama found my Sable magazine. <laughs> I got in trouble for that one, man. No, I'm joking. I wasn't there yet. Those were the Russo years. Okay, so. okay, okay, man, okay. Well, I want to go back to the book for one second. Now, writing this book about the Sheik, man, you obviously learned about some of the other great stars around that time. Papiro, Furpo that you talked about, Bobo Brazil Jr., because she has some amazing feuds. Um, do you think by writing this book, it'll lead you to write about some more historical greats that might not have got the uh, shine like they really should have? I hope so. I mean, I've been thinking about what I'm going to do next because I'm finishing up a book now that's not wrestling related. I actually started writing it almost immediately after Chic, and it's a book about the history of superheroes. So I'm finishing that now, and I'm thinking next thing I do, I do want it to be wrestling now 
it might be a biography like like blood and fire or it might be a different kind of book about wrestling i'm not quite sure but on the biography front i do have a couple of names in mind i don't want to say who but <laughs> but i have a couple of names of people that are very important major figures never had a book done about them would be great to see one and i would absolutely love to jump into their story the same way i did with the sheik so um we'll see if there's interest i'm hope that's the thing i'm hoping the success of this book opens the door for other books to come because it's this is my fourth book but you know this is the first time i've been writing books like continuously like like you know i wrote my first one like in 2006 so they're really spread out so you know i'm hoping this could become more of a regular thing now nice 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 man and i'll tell you listening to you being this historian that you are I'm going to have to bring you back another time because I do this thing where it's like a wrestling trivia, but I only bring in wrestling historians, and I think it would be great to compete in that. We're going to talk about that one day, man. Okay, sure. Um, I also just had, um, from Headlock Comics, Michael Kingston. He actually wrote a lot of different comic books, uh, WWE comic books, and his own comic books currently. He's working with Jerry Lawler. But he talked about speaking to the comic book young author creators. I want you to talk to the young authors out there that are in college right now that are like, man, I want to do this. I wrote five, 10 books and they're not really hitting yet. They're not really selling. What would you say to inspire them to just keep going? Well, it depends on what you're doing and what you're writing about, but I think it's important to be passionate about what you're writing about so that, you know, if you're only doing it for money, then I think you're going to you're setting yourself up for disappointment because unless you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or somebody like you're not going to become, you know, a multimillionaire doing this. You know, yes, you'll make money, hopefully, but it's but it's going to be side money, you know, help money that will be, an, uh, you know, kind of like a additional kind of thing. So you have to have a passion for what you're doing. Like, like for example, this book here, sometimes people in wrestling and in the business and fans, they're very much used to autobiographies in wrestling where the wrestler themselves very often is trying to put themselves over, or it's kind of a carny thing where they're trying to make a little money and it's a little bit cynical. And so when they see somebody who's trying to do like an honest independent biography, they think like, well, what's this guy's angle? What uh, did you talk to the family? What are you trying to do here? Did, are you giving Sabu any money for this? And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute now. Hold, hold on. If I was writing a biography of, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, would I have to track down his family and give them a cut? Like, <laughs> that's not how this works, you know? So, like, I'm doing it, and I, and I think sometimes people don't understand this. A big reason is because I'm passionate about the subject. I want to get his story out there. I want to preserve it. I want to preserve the history. That, that's important to me. I'm not going to do it for nothing just because my time is valuable and I can't, you know, just devote all that much time and not be making anything, you know, but my number one goal is the work. So that's got to be your mindset. And if it's not, then in this day and age, you know, writing books may not be for you, you know, like you, you you've got to, you've got to think that way. Man, that's 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 real. You got it right there, man. He was being totally one honest, one hundred. He was totally honest with you. That's all you could ask for. I want you to shout out one more time before we get out of here. Where they can find you at, as far as your podcast and everything as well. 
Sure. So I got a podcast, which is on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which is Brian Last and Jim Cornette's network. And it's called Shut Up and Wrestle. It is an old school vintage wrestling podcast. So I have different guests every week. And what we talk about is, you know, is dependent on who the guest is. So, like, you know, I've had Dr. Tom Pritchard on there. I had the Blue Meanie on there. I had Stu Sachs, the original publisher of Pro Wrestling Illustrated on there. Um, all people like that. I have, uh, um, uh, Manny Fernandez was just on. So like the P and, and I have historians on there, writers and uh, people like me, and we'll just have conversations. It's very casual. It's like listening to just a conversation between friends talking about old school wrestling. So if that sounds cool, then look it up. It's called shut up and wrestle Spotify, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, wherever you find them, um, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Brian R Solomon. On Facebook, I have an author page. If you look up Brian Solomon Writer, and I've got a, I've got an author web page, which the link to that is on all my social media platforms. So that, and that's how people can keep up with me. Y'all got that? He gave you all the game. How to get a hold of the book is right there. How to listen to him on a podcast weekly. Y'all see, he's a great guy. <laughs> but we can't leave just yet without doing my very final segment. And my final segment is called Ring the Bell. Well, Ring the Bell is, is that you got 60 seconds. You can say whatever. You can go ahead and inspire one more time. Uh, you can tell them where to get the book again. You can tell them what you ate for lunch. Whatever you want to talk about. This is your world. This is your whiteboard. You got 60 seconds. Author Brian Solomon, I want you to ring the bell. All right. Well, what I'm going to say is this. If you're listening to this, and you're a young person, or maybe you didn't grow up in the Detroit area, and the chic doesn't mean anything to you or whatever, and you're going, who is this guy? Who cares? I can't stress enough to you still, this book has value. If you even have any kind of interest in learning about the things that led to the business that we have today and that you love today, hopefully, this is a book you're going to want to read. And you're going to come away going, you know what? I didn't know a lot about this guy. I didn't understand why he was important but I understand it now because not only is it the story of his life, but it's the story of everything that was going on around him in the wrestling business, all those decades, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way through. And if you want that story, then read this book because it has a lot more to offer than just the life story of one person. Man, that's awesome right there. And actually, I forgot to ask this question, but it'll go right to what you just said. If it's a young wrestler out there, tell them how this book would be valuable to them. Because it is, but I'm going to let you tell them why it is. Well, it is for the very reason, like a lot of people talk about in wrestling. You know, we live in the post-Bret Hart era, the post-Shawn Michaels era. We live in the Brian Danielson era. I love all those guys, but, big but, with a capital B. The problem is now that, the only type of working, quote unquote, working that people talk about is wrestling moves. What moves do you know? What holds do you know? That's great. But working is so many other things. Working is driving an audience insane because you will not lock up with your opponent for 10 minutes and you're walking around the ring and you're cursing people out and they're ready to kill you. That is working. And you need to know how to do things like that because, look, wrestling is show business. So here's the thing. Here's how it ties into the book. The Sheik, Ed Farhat, 
He knew that. He understood that at a time when a lot of people didn't because the business was changing. You know, the, 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 the Luthezes of the world, the Strangler Lewises of the world, these talented shooters who could break every bone in your body, right? The business was changing and it was becoming more and more entertainment. Now, we all know where that's led. It's led to where we are today. But because of where we are today, you need to learn how to be an entertainer. And the Sheik understood that. He understood that I can get a reaction from these people doing the things I do. The Sheik knew how to do all of it, all the holds, all the reversals. He was a champion wrestler in the army. He could probably kill you in the ring. He knew how to shoot. He also knew he didn't have to do those things. And being a smart worker is knowing what works. So when you read this book, you get into like the technique of what it is to be an entertainer in the show business world of professional wrestling. So I think that should be valuable today still. That's it, y'all. Y'all heard it. There's nothing else to be said. He gave you all the information. Go get the book. Go buy it right now. Today. Go get it. You're on the little internet. You're on your phone. Buy it right now. Who would that be? I feel like I'm on an infomercial for my book. Oh, man. I got you, bro. I got you. But with that being said, guys, I want to thank you again for checking us out. And, Brian, don't leave right quick after I end this. I want to talk to you about one thing before we go. But, guys, once again, make sure you check it out. The book is amazing. He told you how to get it. Amazon, uh, everywhere. Wherever you get books. And he's even got the audio book that you can hear this man's voice. He has a very silky and velvety voice. You heard it on the show. So now you can get it in the audio book form. Get it that way, too. And guys, as always, make sure you check out all the other uh, our other episodes. Vince Russo, uh, John Cena Sr., Gilbert, Duke Drosy, whoever. Check out all the other episodes. Subscribe, share, hit us with that five star, some comments. And I will see you next time from Deshaun, Whip Dog, Whipple, and I was throwing it to you. From... Oh, oh I'm going to it again. I'm going to it All right, sorry, y'all. Y'all heard this. I keep these bloopers in the show anyway. And, and guys, I will see you next time from Deshaun, Whip Dog, Whipple, and Brian R. Solomon. And I will see you next time on the Wrestling Heroes and Insiders podcast, a.k.a. The Whip 